The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Six days to go, and getting close to two-thirds of the 2016 electorate has already voted. As usual, there are no Biden campaign events scheduled, unless you count uh, the nightly riots last night, not just Portland and Seattle, but Washington, New York and Philadelphia were aflame. Don't worry, it was mostly peaceful looting and burning and rampaging. In Philly, it was just a dozen or so people shot. So what's the big deal? Oh, and a truck uh, trying to mow down pedestrians. Pennsylvania's Democrat Governor Tom Wolf. I'm uh, and my staff in, have been in constant communication since last night. Uh, with the folks in Philadelphia, uh, and the hope is that that doesn't escalate into anything uh, more than than the peaceful protests that that, uh, I think this kind of situation brings out. Governor Wolf in sheep's clothing. The Pennsylvania National Guard was stood down and Black Lives Matter and Antifa got to shove around so-called law enforcement because with guys like Wolf in charge, the real enforcers of the mob. Walmarts were looted, which is good for China, because that's where everything in Walmart has to be reordered from. Looters took advantage of the heavy police presence in West Philadelphia and went to stores along Aramingo Avenue in Port Richmond. Chopper 3 over a very chaotic scene around 8.30 tonight. A footlocker athletic store was ransacked, nearby businesses as well. Police commanders described the area as a total loss from looting. The Target store became a target on Castor Avenue. A very large group broke into the Walmart on Wheatsheaf Lane, loading up cars with televisions and other expensive items. Police say there was also a shooting in this area. An 18-year-old man and 15-year-old boy suffered non-life-threatening injuries. So, mostly peaceful shooting. Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A, remember them? We all love the great taste of that fabulous homophobic chicken. And then it turned out the company had just been suckering us all along. And the chickens who run the joint decided they would take their marching orders from the corrupt tax-avoiding sex fiends at the Southern Poverty Law Centre and would no longer support so-called homophobic institutions such as the Salvation Army. A truly good organization, uh, slandered by that worthless little creep Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A. For his next trick, Mr. Cathy reacted to Black Lives Matter by saying that white folks needed to repent by shining the shoes of black men and demonstrating what he had in mind by getting down on his knees right there on the stage and polishing the brogues of uh, an African-American procured by him for such purposes. You can't get more woke than that, right? And how'd that work out for woke filet? Last night in the city of brotherly love, a chick filet was looted and destroyed. The execrable Dan Cathy has been feeding the crocodile in hopes of being eaten last, only to find he's just another appetizer. What does this mean for Pennsylvania's critical electoral college votes when they're counted on Tuesday night? Well, between the mobs in Philly and Biden's anti-energy platform in Western PA, it's hard to see how this helps the Democrats in an important state. 
In the meaningless national polls, Joe's lead continues to slip. JTN, RMG, Biden up seven. Emerson, Biden up five. Investors Business Daily, Biden up four. As you know, when it's five points or less, I figure Trump's ahead. Uh, nevertheless, The Economist, The Economist, estimates that Donald J. Trump has less than a 1% chance of winning the popular vote and a less than 4% chance of winning the Electoral College and thus the election. So Biden has a 96% certainty of victory. On The Economist's map, there are only three toss-up states left, Iowa, Ohio and Georgia. Everywhere else is over. On America's Atlantic seaboard, there is only one surviving Republican state, the pallidly pink South Carolina. Uh-huh. Let's, let's put this in a drawer and revisit it on Tuesday evening. I'm reminded of the New York Times four years ago, October 18th, 2016, headline, Hillary Clinton has a 91% chance to win. And they maintained that percentage more or less all the way to whatever it was, 9.47, 10.23 p.m. on election night when Trump won Florida. This is what the great Mickey Kaus calls overism, as in it's over, give it up losers. Remember that rubbish the other day about Biden going to an ice cream parlor and the wretched fawning court eunuchs of the American press corps asking him, gee, uh, what flavor did you get, Mr. President-in-waiting? Uh, for start, he had soft serve, easier on his gums, uh, and they only had two flavors anyway, uh, and he wanted a melange, a black and white, chocolate and vanilla, ebony and ivory living in perfect harmony in Joe's ice cream cone, but the two-tone swirling button was on the fritz, and... Uh, so it wasn't really that exciting a question or answer. Uh, the Washington Post has now moved on to running puff pieces on what Joe and Jill Biden are likely to be eating in the White House. Uh, what they'll be eating is crow, and they'll be eating it in that Delaware basement. Overism. Don't succumb to it. Trump is running for president. Biden is sitting in his basement for president. That's not how it works, even with a totally dishonest media whose court eunuchs are all in on the scam. If you've read A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain, You'll recall that Hank Morgan, the eponymous time-travelling New Englander, uh, was much taken by the court circular published each week in Camelot. On Monday, the king rode in the park. On Tuesday, the king rode in the park. On Wednesday, the king rode in the park. On Thursday, the king rode in the park. If any satirist were minded to reverse the premise of Mark Twain's book, a time traveller from King Arthur's court in latter-day America would marvel at how the US media are taking it to the next level. King Joe doesn't actually ride in the park. They're pretending he's out there riding in the park. And that when he dismounts to address the peasantry, there are actual peasantry there rather than three vetted reporters standing in painted circles 200 feet apart because Joe's been upgraded to super premium mega platinum social distancing miles. 
and even reduced to one ride in the park every fortnight, King Joe can't help giving away that after the coronation, the power behind the throne will pretty quickly be getting out in front of the throne. My name's Joe Biden. I'm Jill Biden's husband, and I am Kamala's running mate. <laughs> you all think I'm kidding, don't you? What does he mean by that? Oh, too late. He's back in the basement in Delaware. Oh, what did Delaware? If Delaware will wear this, she'll wear anything. Like a break from the election? Well, there's nothing to see, nowhere to go. The new Bond film was supposed to be out now, but it's been pushed back till next spring. And don't bet on it opening even then, which I'm furious about because for my entire adult life, every time the US election coincides with the release of a new 007 picture, I do my standard... Uh, joke. What's the new Bond film like? Oh, it's great. There's this terrifying scene where a shark gets thrown into a tank of Democrat operatives. I miss that joke. Because for this election, you don't need the old school Democrat sharks. It's brazen now. Back in the real world, this election is winnable. And on the ground, the president's expanding base is winning it. Didn't care for Perry Como back there. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir Van Morrison. No more lockdown, no more government overreach. No more fascist bullies disturbing our peace. No more taking of our freedom and our God-given rights. Pretending it's for our safety When it's really to enslave Who's running our country? Who's running our world? Examine it closely And watch it unfurl No more threats No more Imperial College Santa's making up crooked facts No more lockdown No more pulling the wool over our eyes No more celebrities telling us Telling us what we're supposed to feel no more status quo Put your shoulder to the wind No more lockdown No more lockdown Van Morrison's new song, No More Lockdown. No more lockdown. What a lyric. No more lockdown, no more government no more overreach, lockdown. no more fascist police disturbing our peace, no more taking of our freedom and our God-given rights, pretending it's for our safety when it's really to enslave. Who's running our country? He's looking at you, Boris. And what about this line? No more Imperial College making up crooked facts. He's looking at you, Professor Pantsdown. Many of Van's fans are turning on him. The health minister of Northern Ireland is turning on him. As I said on Rush the other day, lockdown is the Afghan war of public health crises. 
Or as the British Tommies used to sing, we're here because we're here because we're here because we're here. In Berlin, German police shut down a 600-strong kinky fetish party. Uh, more on that theme uh, a little later in today's show. Um, they shut down a 600-strong kinky fetish party uh, because uh, none of the kinky fetishists were social distancing. The gloating coppers conceded on Twitter that for many of the attendees, the night ended, quote, unsatisfactorily. The real kinky fetish is lockdown. Ooh, 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 I never really enjoyed getting a takeout coffee until they made me stand in painted circles on the sidewalk to get it. In these trying times, we could all use a little diversion. Watch Mark Stein's readings of work by poets from Robert Browning to Robert Service in Stein's Sunday poems. Whether it's Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, John McRae's In Flanders Fields, or James Montgomery's Greenland, Stein brings you the rhyme, rhythm, and reason behind classics and lesser-known delights. Stein's Sunday poems are available exclusively at www.steinonline.com for members of the Mark Stein Club. View the full catalog at www.steinonline.com slash poems. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. A president colluding with Russia, the strange death of a king, and election night goes wireless. It's October 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, six days before the U.S. presidential election, the Republican candidate has been accused by the Democrats of colluding with Russia. It is alleged by the outgoing administration's Secretary of State, Bainbridge Colby, that Warren Harding used an intermediary, the financier Washington Vanderlip, to negotiate with Bolshevik leader Vladimir Lenin. An American syndicate is said to have demanded exclusive 60-year oil and gas leases in northern Siberia in exchange for a new Harding administration granting full diplomatic recognition to the Soviet Union. Comrade Lenin is said to have told Mr. H.G. Wells the famous British author of The War of the Worlds and other classics, that the Republican candidate is behind the group seeking the concessions. But Mr Harding himself claims he's never even heard of Mr Vanderlip. Russians rag on around the world, spreading Bolshevism to every corner of the map. Australia is the latest country to welcome its own Communist Party, founded in Sydney with Mr W.P. Isman as its first general secretary. The messy aftermath of the world war continues. The Allied powers, Britain, France, Italy and Japan, have signed a protocol with the Kingdom of Romania, giving it authority over Bessarabia. 
If you're not sure where Bessarabia is, it's the highly fertile region on the north shore of the Lower Danube and the Black Sea between the Prut and Dniester rivers. Only two months ago, the Ottoman Empire handed over the city of Kars to Armenia as required by the Treaty of Siev. The Turkish army has now taken it back without resistance. Another day, another treaty. Representatives of the Italian government and the Senussi Order of Libya have signed the Accord of Al-Rajma in Rome, with Italy recognising Sultan Said Mohammed Idris of Cyrenaica as the ruler of the oases of Jagbub or Jilla Jalu and Kufra. All night long they chatter away, all day long they were happy and gay, swinging and swinging in a hunky-monkey way. Abba-dabba-dabba-dabba-dabba-dabba-dabba-dabba-dabba means monk, I love my shoes. Abba-dabba-dabba in monkey talk means chimp, I love you too. Send a big bath on one night in June, he married them, and very soon they went upon their abba-dabba honeymoon. Who would not like to be fluent in chimp and monkey talk? Just released in American bookstores is Hugh Lofting's children's novel, the story of Dr. Doolittle, about a physician in the English West Country who can talk to animals. The story started out as letters sent home from the front by Mr. Lofting to his own children during the World War. There are certainly times when it would be helpful for a doctor to be able to talk to a monkey. We reported earlier this month that His Majesty the King of Greece had been bitten by a Barbary ape while walking his dog in the palace grounds. King Alexander has now died from the monkey bite. He was just 27 and had reigned for only three years, ever since Britain, France and Italy forced his father, King Constantine, from the throne. Greece's Chamber of Deputies has now proclaimed Prince Paul, the late king's 18-year-old brother, as the new monarch. Prince Paul has indicated that he will not accept the throne unless the Greek people make plain that they prefer him to either his father, King Constantine, or his older brother, Prince George. Prince Paul is presently living in Switzerland, and until he returns to Greece, the Minister of the Navy, Admiral Pavlos Kuntoriatis, will serve as regent. Every mother Whether or not you can pull the Cork out of Erin, you can pull the Lord Mayor of Cork out of Erin. Following his arrest on charges of sedition, Terence McSweeney was brought to England and jailed in Brixton Prison. He went on hunger strike and starved himself for 74 days. Mr McSweeney is now dead 
and thousands of his fellow Irishmen lined the streets as his body returned to his hometown. Even more disturbing for the authorities, his death has sparked protests worldwide in support of Irish republicanism. The Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company has been issued a limited commercial radio station license by the government's Bureau of Navigation to transmit point-to-point between Westinghouse facilities in four states under the call letters of KDKA. However, the new KDKA has announced its intention to use the license also to broadcast a general signal enabling owners of any radio receiver to hear the presidential election returns as they come in on the night of November the 2nd. The SS Cape Fear, a steamer carrying a load of concrete, has sunk in Narragansett Bay uh, at Rhode Island after crossing the path of another freighter, the city of Atlanta. Within three minutes, the Cape Fear had gone bow first into waters 125 fathoms deep, about 750 feet, taking 17 of its 34-man crew down to their graves. Be careful on those city streets, Louis Nell. The French Minister of Justice is dead after being struck by an automobile uh, while strolling the Rue de Castiglione in Paris. Rush Hawkins, the New York politician, Civil War veteran and art and book collector, has also been killed by a motor car while crossing the street outside his home on Fifth Avenue. Count Primo Magri is dead. Born in Italy, he became one of the most celebrated dwarves on the American stage, standing just two foot eight. In 1885, he married Lavinia Warren, the diminutive widow of P.T. Barnum's most famous dwarf, General Tom Thumb. Unlike Tom Thumb's military rank, a mere honorific conferred by Mr. Barnum himself, Primo Magri was said to have been made a count by Pope Pius IX. He was last seen on screen in the 1915 motion picture A Lilliputian's Courtship. And that's the way of the world, October 1920. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Oh, we have a brand new member to our ranks. Please welcome from the battleground state of Iowa, Eric Dale. Eric writes, Hey, Mark and fellow Mark Stein Club members, new member and first-time poster here. What do you think? Win or lose comes of the never-Trump conservatives after the election. It seems to me that a lot of them fail to appreciate the failures of free trade with hostile regimes like China. So many conservatives talk about regulatory capture, but no one but you seems to talk about the financial and cultural capture of every major corporation, including Apple, Google, Hollywood and the NBA in pursuit 
of the ever-elusive Chinese market. Never Trump conservatives seem to have a particular blind spot to this, as if their knowledge of economics begins and ends with a first-year economics textbook and they make no connections between trade and national security. Is there a long-term place in the coalition for everyone, or are we reaching the point we go our separate ways? Uh, Interesting point, Eric. The short answer is no. I don't think the never-Trumpers can come home, win or lose, by which I mean the prominent public uh, never-Trumpers. If Biden wins, many of them will have voted for him. Uh, So at least a few of them will be angling for jobs in his cabinet as uh, Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of the Interior or whatever. Uh, But even those who want to come home and build a post-Trump Republican Party will not be welcome. Uh, because they will have contributed to the defeat of the Trump Republican Party, uh, which most members of the Republican Party, most voters for the Republican Party, uh, like. Bill Kristol, the founder of the Weekly Standard, was prepared to destroy his own magazine over Trump. Well, that's his choice. <laughs> but that's the reality of uh, Never Trumpers. Uh, even their own their own business model doesn't make sense for their own business, never mind uh, for the party's business or the nation's. And that tweet he tweeted saying he preferred a deep state to a Trump state, that's a little more problematic. He's saying he prefers the machinations of secretive, unaccountable government agencies to the will of the people as constitutionally expressed. And that's kind of revealing Uh, because it explains a lot of what else he says and does. So I think we should take people like Bill at their word. For for example, the token conservative columnist at the Washington Post, never-Trumper Jennifer Rubin, now says she's not uh, just not identifying as a Trumper, but that she no longer identifies as conservative. In other words, never-Trumper is merely the first step toward voting for... Biden-Harris toward abandoning the GOP toward campaigning as the so-called Lincoln Project is currently doing against all candidates of Lincoln's party. And and this is for little other than class distaste. Oh, the orange man and his ghastly supporters are simply not our kind of people. Furthermore, whether Trump wins or loses, the post-Trump Republican Party... Uh, whether it comes uh, in a week or two or in four years' time, the post-Trump Republican Party is not going to be the pre-Trump Republican Party because by 2016, the pre-Trump Republican Party had become entirely detached from its base, a party running on endless unwon wars and the Chamber of Commerce line on mass immigration and the continued transfer of global power to China has no base. There's no takers for it. Uh, I mean, you're right that, as I've been saying, in America alone 14 years ago and in many other places, culture trumps economics, Eric. But even as an economic argument, it sucks and it's led to 40% of Americans doing low-paid service jobs that even if those jobs have survived the COVID 
are about to be rendered obsolete by technology and technology made in China at that. The think tank right in Washington is more cocooned than Biden in his basement sucking on applesauce and watching Matlock reruns. Uh, boots on the ground in Who Gives a Stan and bazillions of Who Gives a Stanies on the ground in America fleeing the instability there and turning every red state blue and all your jobs and your children's future on the ground in Wuhan. Oh, but don't worry, there might be a capital gains tax cut and we'll do a little light election season pandering on uh, those social conservative issues uh, that are strictly for the rubes. There's no market out there for that party. There's a Democrat base, there's a Trump base, but there's no never-Trump base. Uh, so why uh, welcome them back to the party? Because they don't bring anybody but themselves. They speak for nobody but themselves. And people get that way back when, when you were still on the team, you weren't serious. You never meant it. And actually, being an MSNBC contributor, dreaming of being Assistant Deputy Undersecretary of the Interior in a Biden administration, is kind of commensurate with your actual talents. Mark Stein's Last Call. Frank Boff was a constant presence on British television for three decades, a genial, avuncular fellow in an apparently endless supply of V-neck argyle sweaters, or jumpers, pullovers in uh, Brit-speak. Frank was a master of live television. He hosted the BBC's flagship sports show Grandstand and its cosy tea time news magazine Nationwide, and he launched the BBC's live breakfast show. It's 6.30, Monday, January the 17th, 1983. You're watching the first edition of BBC Television's Breakfast Time, Britain's first ever regular early morning television programme. Very good morning to you all. Now, from now on, five days a week, from 6.30 till 9, we hope to be present at your breakfast table to bring you the morning's news, weather, sport, traffic. But we also plan to put an awful lot more into our breakfast menu. Regular features, regional news, live reports from all over the country. And it never got any more exciting than that, yet it proved lethal to my old chums David Frost and Michael Parkinson over on the Commercial Channel. Frank Boff was also a famous family man. There was a travel show on the BBC called Holiday 97, or possibly Holiday 73, or maybe Holiday 89. Oh, that's right, they changed the name uh, every year. Anyway, whenever you switched on, there would be Frank and his lovely wife, Nesta, motoring through France and Italy. Well, you've now got me on tenterhooks because I know you've always wanted to come to Siena. Are you disappointed? And then one day, Britain woke up, and there in the morning papers was Frank hanging upside down in a dungeon, being whipped by his dominatrix while off his face on cocaine. Of course, that's completely routine if you're a conservative junior minister, but somehow the BBC felt it was at odds with Frank's cosy, besweated image. It was then a bit of a shock when he appeared on the front of the News of the World, confessing to using drugs and attending sex parties. 
his BBC career came to an end. In American terms, it's not quite Mr Rogers being revealed to have an almost insatiable appetite for hookers, drugs and aberrant sex, but it's pretty darn close, at least as far as the knitwear is concerned. Frank Boff was everyone's favourite TV uncle, but off he went to what was then British Broadcasting's equivalent of Siberia, one of the new and largely unwatched Sky satellite channels, Sky 4, Sky 7, Sky 23, whatever it was. And instead of sports superstars and prime ministers, he was reduced on one especially grim occasion to interviewing me and the then-Canadian High Commissioner Donald MacDonald about a fisheries dispute off Newfoundland. It was a long interview. Granted Frank's masochistic appetites, surely this was beyond even his pain threshold. Yet he stuck it out, he did his penance, and eventually he made it back onto real or real-ish TV. And then it happened again. The manacles, the cat and nine tails, Miss Whiplash, the works. It was useless to deny it, for Frank, rather touchingly, always paid by personal check. It's traditional in British sex scandals for the loyal wife to be photographed standing by her man, and the sorely put upon Nesta dutifully played her part. She defiantly told the Daily Mail, in an unfortunate choice of words, We will not be beaten. Speak for yourself, we thought. Frank was, alas, thoroughly beaten and never seen on the BBC again. The difference between the bland, cosy public image of sports shows and travel shows and the private reality of drugs and depravity was a gaping chasm. Perhaps it was being too mainstream that drove him to the wilder shores. Dead at the age of 87, Frank Boff. <laughs> August 25th, 1980, at the end of the premiere of the musical 42nd Street, on the 11th curtain call, the producer David Merrick appears from the wings to tumultuous applause. I'm sorry to have to report, he begins, and the house roars with laughter. <laughs> What could there be to be sorry about? The show was a triumph, a magnificent backstage musical, a vindication of all Broadway's hoariest myths, proving the truth of its most memorable line when the driven director of the show within the show turns to his young chorus girl and declares that the two most glorious words in the English language are musical comedy. So what's there to be sorry about? No, no! No, no, shouts David Merrick over the laughter. This is tragic. You don't understand. Gower Champion died this morning. Gower Champion was the director and choreographer of 42nd Street, and Merrick had known of his unexpected death for hours but had kept it from his cast and crew all day because he knew that it would have maximum impact if he announced it at the end of the show. And then he walked over to hug and console Wanda Rickett, his show's young 22-year-old star and champion's real-life lover. In the show's title number, her lover dies and she dances on. 
In real life, Miss Rickett had spent the last couple of hours dancing on without knowing that her lover was indeed dead. Was David Merrick's embrace a sincere gesture of sympathy or a not-so-subtle way of drawing the media's attention to another angle on the story? With this producer, you never could tell. But he'd got himself the most memorable first night in Broadway history. It's not what Socrates meant by a good death, but in showbiz terms, it was spectacularly good. For Gower Champion's ex-wife Marge, there would be no such unforgettable exit. Marge was dancing ballet at the Hollywood Bowl by the age of 11, and at 18 she was hired by Walt Disney to model Snow White's physical movements. The animators couldn't quite bring her to life, uh, not without Marge's help. She did the same for the dwarves, uh, including putting on a bulky overcoat to double for Dopey climbing atop Sneezy's shoulders to dance uh, with Snow White. At 20, she was in the last Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers movie at RKO, and then she met Gower Champion and they married, and Marge and Gower Champion became eventually America's most famous dance couple. Here they are in Give a Girl a Break, 1953. I won't bother explaining the plot. They're on a rooftop, and Gower Champion's character is explaining to her the realities. What was it then? What made you change your mind? It was a silly impulse, and I thought better of it. Began to think those rehearsals all day, all night, the work, the hours. For what? perfectly happy as I am. Don't try to kid me. Why have you kept on practicing? Why have you kept at it day after day? So you could go to a fancy dress ball? I know you. This kind of thing isn't your dish. You belong in the theater. You need the theater as much as it needs you. Oh, what's the use, Ted? You know I haven't got a chance. Oh, now we're getting down to it, huh? You're scared. Don't you know you can dance circles around those kids? You just have to keep dancing and dancing and dancing. Got the jitters, that's all. The best dancer I ever knew. Come on, give me your hand. One, two, three, four. Left, right, left. That's it. Now, come on, let's go. Let it go. One, two, double it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four. And then they dance. What's the matter? You tired already? As a dancer, said Marge Champion, by the time you're 40, you're done. Not like acting or singing. Her husband, Gower, became one of the first generation of Broadway's powerhouse hyphenates, the choreographer-director. Never regarded as a great visionary on the level of Jerome Robbins or Michael Bennett or Bob Fosse, he was the guy who delivered hits and a great night out. Bye Bye Birdie, Hello Dolly, 42nd Street. He and Marge divorced and she found work harder to come by. A one-off acting gig on the Kids from Fame, a program of reinvented worship services for Bel Air Presbyterian Church. 
the choreography job on the TV musical Queen of the Stardust Ballroom. And finally, she was back on Broadway at the age of 81, dancing in the revival of Follies with my old friend, a lovely man, the choreographer, Donald Sadler. They hadn't met until that show, but until well into her 90s, Marge and Donald danced twice a week just to stay in shape. Well, it worked as far as the fitness was concerned. She outlived her famous husband by four decades, dead at the age of 101, dancer, actress, choreographer, singer, Marge Champion. I won't dance. Don't ask me. I won't dance. Don't ask me. I won't dance, monsieur, with you. My heart won't let my feet do things they should do. You know what? You're lovely. So what? I'm lovely. But oh, what you do to me? I'm like an ocean wave that's bumped on the shore. I feel so absolutely stumped on the floor. When you dance, you're charming and you're gentle. If our lips should brush, it's accidental. You know my approach is strictly mental. Good heaven rest us, I'm not asbestos. And that's why I won't dance, why should I? I won't dance, how could I? I won't dance. Merci beaucoup. You know that music leads the way to romance. So if I hold you in my arms, I won't dance. And then, of course, they dance. for today's show. See you on the telly tonight with Tucker and back right here at Stein Online for a brand new tale for our time. Stay safe, stay free. time for another edition of the Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.
Seats Reserved.